Thanks, Kevin. Thank you. If you notice me grinning like a kid on Christmas, it's because I'm very excited about this. I love just being able to share the word with you today. Uh, so we'll dive right in. This is our third and final week in our series, New Life. And we've been looking at Mark 5 and three healings that Jesus performs. And we've seen the healings that he's done thus far, uh, healing a man who has been essentially terrorized by demons, casting them out of the man, uh, healing a woman from a, a sickness, a, a disease that she had for over a decade. And we've seen that both of these healings have gone beyond the immediate problem. They've gone beyond the obvious issue, and the way Jesus performed these healings not only restored bodies and minds, it restored the individuals back into their communities. In essence, it gave them new life. That's the idea of the series, that Jesus knew exactly what these people needed. And what I love is that they didn't even ask for all these extras. They didn't ask for the way he restored them into their community, but he has done more than heal them. He's given them a new life. So today we're going to see the third of those back-to-back -back stories, the story of Jairus and his daughter. And this story overlaps the story we heard last week. So remember, the, the woman from last week, the woman who reached out and touched Jesus' garment, that all happened while Jesus was on the way to heal someone else, Jairus' daughter. So we're going to back up just a little bit and look at the start of Jairus' story again. And to follow along, I always recommend you follow along. You can open your Bibles to Mark chapter 5, verse 22. If you're using a house Bible, this is on page 833. And for everyone watching online, I want to welcome you. Uh, I'm not going to pretend that I can see you. It's a one-way camera. In fact, you may be watching this after I do all of this. And if you're like me and you ever feel a little lonely or disconnected through these virtual things, please don't hesitate to reach out to the wonderful staff here at Grace. Uh, you can find their emails by going to uh, gracefishers.church, click the side, click new at Grace, about us, scroll down on the page, and you'll see the smiling faces and email links of our wonderful staff here. One of the things I love about going here is being able to chat to everyone after service and in the lobby. And if you're missing that online, please don't hesitate to email us, email the staff. And as a side note, I did ask before giving this invitation. So anyway, <laughs> all right, Mark 5:22. Then a leader of the local synagogue, whose name was Jairus, arrived. When he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet, pleading fervently with him. My little daughter is dying, he said. Please come and lay your hands on her. Heal her so she can live. This is an intense scene. As Tim mentioned last week, we know that Jairus is the leader of a synagogue. That's, it's kind of like the local church. And this would have been uh, essentially an elected position among the Jewish community. So we know that Jairus is trusted, he's popular, he's well-connected, and he's probably fairly well-to-do, or he certainly wasn't poor. Now, we don't know what he thought of Jesus. We don't know if Jairus believed that Jesus was the Messiah or if he was simply desperate and heard that Jesus could heal. What we do know 
is that for a leader of the synagogue to fall down in front of a traveling teacher, a traveling teacher who's already attracted some controversy at this point, I mean, this would have raised a couple of eyebrows. But clearly, Jairus doesn't care. You can hear it in his words, my little daughter is dying. And in Greek, in Greek, this phrase is even more heartbreaking. It says more literally, my little daughter is holding on at the end. Not just the end, the utmost end. And he goes on to say she is holding on that Jesus might save her, that she might live. You can hear the desperation in that. She's just holding on, and she's holding on for you. And Jesus doesn't say anything, but he does go with him. And the crowd is following and it's pushing in, and, and I can just picture it. Jairus leading the way, maybe trying to hurry Jesus along a little bit, and Jesus following, and all the crowd reaching and pushing and trying to touch, and the disciples maybe throwing a few elbows trying to keep up. And along the way, this is when one of the women in the crowd reaches out and touches Jesus' garment, and she's healed. And Jesus stops everything. And Tim looked at that story last week, and, and it's a beautiful story. If, if you haven't heard it, go back and listen to it. It's great. It's this beautiful moment of healing and restoration for this woman. But Jairus is still waiting, and his daughter's life is on the line here. And then we read this in verse 35. While Jesus was still speaking to her, that's the woman who got healed, messengers arrived from the house of Jairus, the leader of the synagogue. They told Jairus, your daughter is dead. There's no use troubling the teacher anymore. I can't imagine this moment for Jairus. I mean, he was so close. He got to Jesus. He pushed through the crowd. He begged Jesus. He convinced him to come. And then this. And in this moment is when Jesus finally speaks to him. But Jesus overheard them and said to Jairus, don't be afraid. Just have This phrase, don't be afraid, just have faith, I think it's a little bit of an unfortunate translation. It always rubbed me a little bit wrong. And I think it's because in English, the word just, we often use it for things that are small or, or simple, you know, just a little bit on the side, or can you just bring that in? Like, you know, it makes it feel to me like Jesus is minimizing this moment, and I promise you, he's not. This man has just lost a daughter, and Jesus understands the full weight of what is going on, and that's why I love the way he says it in Greek. It's just four words, only four words, and it sounds like this. Don't fear, only trust. I love that this dramatic, intentional moment. I can picture him looking right at Jairus, who just lost everything, and he says, don't fear. 
only trust. And then he stops the crowd. No one else is coming. Just Peter, James, John, they're with him, and they're going to Jairus' house, and nobody else is. Verse 38, when they came to the home of the synagogue leader, Jesus saw much commotion and weeping and wailing. He went inside and asked, why all this commotion and weeping? The child isn't dead, she's only asleep. And the crowd laughed at him. Now, at this time, a Jewish funeral would begin right away after someone died. And it begins with a lot of traditional weeping and wailing. And in fact, this part is so important that if you don't have a lot of friends or connections, you might pay someone to weep or wail at your funeral. But of course, we know Jairus is a prominent member of the community. In fact, this section reminds us the home of the synagogue leader. And so he would have no end of weepers and wailers. In fact, he probably had a lot more than he wanted. Because this kind of funeral, this would be the kind of funeral you'd want to be seen at. And we don't know, but it's a pretty decent guess that there were a lot of social climbers there. A lot of people who really didn't have much love for Jairus or his daughter. Because when Jesus says, she's not dead, she's only asleep, they laugh at him. And this is not a happy laughter. This is not kind of an awkward laugh. This is specifically mocking, derisive laughter. They don't respond with curiosity or hope. They don't respond with compassion or pity for the guy that just can't take it. No, they start mocking someone at a child's funeral. Quite possibly, as the father is walking into the room, and as we're about to see, almost certainly, while the mother was in the room, or at least nearby. And Jesus isn't having any of it. Verse 40, but he made them all leave, and he took the girl's father and mother and his three disciples into the room where the girl was lying. Made them all leave is a fairly generous translation here. It more literally says he cast them all out. This is the same word for casting out demons. This is the word for banishing someone. It literally means he threw them out. And remember, this is a man that when he says go, demons flee. So I don't know what he said, and I don't know how he said it, but I guess they did not take long to leave. And this directness, even fierceness, is contrasted with the very next moment. He took the girl's father and mother and his three disciples and he led them to the room where the little dead girl was lying. And I love that this doesn't say Jairus. And it doesn't say synagogue leader. It says the mother and father of the child because in this moment that is everything they are. They are a father and a mother and they have just lost their child and Jesus is leading them into that space where their worst fears have come true. He has cleared the room 
He has silenced the noise, and now he is bringing them into the space where their hope was lost. They enter the child's room, and Jesus takes her by the hand. Holding her hand, he said to her, Talitha kum, which means little girl, get up. And the girl, who was 12 years old, immediately stood up and walked around, and they were overwhelmed and totally amazed. He takes her hand, he says Talitha Kum, and immediately, immediately she gets up. And to say the parents were overwhelmed and totally amazed, this is probably an understatement. The phrase here means they were beside themselves. They were out of their minds. When I imagine this, I see the mother just screaming her daughter's name over and over again. I've had the chance to see a few unexpected reunions in my life, and sometimes that all it, that's all it is. It's just screaming, and they can't stop screaming. And other times, a parent is filled with strength, and they rush to their child, and they throw their arms around her, and they won't let go. And other times, all their strength just leaves them and they fall to the floor, and they can barely lift their arms, and the child has to come to them so they can touch the child's face, and they have eyes for nothing and no one else. I don't know what this scene looked like, but if I had to guess, I think at least one of the parents was squeezing the girl very tight because Jesus tells them to give her some food. Jesus gave them strict orders not to tell anyone what had happened, and he told them to give her something to eat. Yeah. Give her some air. Give her something to eat. But there was also a very practical side to the command about eating, and I think it was the same reason he told them not to tell anyone about what happened. It was the same reason he cleared out the room. It was the same reason he wouldn't allow any onlookers. Same reason he said she's not dead, she's only asleep. You see, getting her something to eat in the ancient world proves that she is really and truly alive. She's not a ghost. She's not a trick or temporary bit of magic. It's not necromancy. She is a real, living human girl. And she's just fine. And he wants everyone to see that. Because if there was any hint that she was dead, that she had really been truly dead, if there was any whisper in the community that he brought her back from the grave, there would be a very real chance that her life would be over. There were all kinds of superstitions about dead and death and dead bodies. There was all kinds of stigma about disease and graves. And if word got out that this girl was dead and now she's alive, it is likely that no one would want anything to do with her. It's likely there'd be rumors that she'd made some kind of deal with the devil or something had been brought back with her or that she was cursed. And if anything went wrong in that village, if anybody got sick, if anybody died, who's the first person they're going to look to? The dead girl. At this time in history, she was probably engaged or soon would be. But if she was the dead girl, 
No, no man would ever want her. She would never have a family. She would never have children of her own. And at this time and in this culture, that would be just as bad as a death sentence. But Jesus prevented all of that. And I love this, nobody even asked him to. He didn't just bring her back from the dead, he prepared a way ahead of her, prepared a hope and a future that no one had even imagined, much less asked for. He restored her to her community and her family and into a new life. And you notice, he did all this secretly. He didn't do this to prove his own power or greatness. He hid his power. He hid his glory. He did this just for her. Just for his love for her and her family. So what are we to do with this story? What are some things we can learn from it? I mean, I think there's a lot to learn from this story, but for me, there were two things that stuck out. One stuck out more or less from the beginning to me, and the other one, every time I reread this story, it's been getting me harder and harder. So the first, the obvious thing that stuck out to me was this little phrase, Talitha kum. This is what Jesus says when he takes the girl's hand and raises her to life. And Mark translates this phrase for us. It it, it means, little girl, I say to you, arise. Now, the reason Mark has to translate it is because Mark is writing in Greek. And this little phrase, it's in Aramaic, not Greek. So Mark is letting all of his Greek readers know, hey, Jesus said to Lethakum, but what it means is, little girl, arise. Okay, well, that's great. But here's the weird thing. Jesus was probably speaking Aramaic all the time. In fact, it's possible that everything Jesus says in the book of Mark was in Aramaic. But, it, but most of the time, Mark has no problem just putting that down in Greek so everybody can understand because Greek was the most widely spoken language and Aramaic was a little local thing. But for some reason... Mark wants us to know that original phrase right here. He doesn't just want us to know what Jesus said. He wants us to know exactly how he said it. And if you're going to pick a phrase, this seems like a weird one to me. I mean, Jesus talks about a lot of important stuff in Mark. We got life and death and crucifixion and resurrection, and it seems like those are a better choice, you know, to get exactly the words. But Mark chose this as one of the very few places to hear Aramaic from Jesus. I think part of it is that Mark wanted us to know that Jesus was speaking her language. He was speaking the language of the daughter and the family. He wasn't speaking some high spiritual language. He wasn't calling out to heaven. He was speaking not simply over, but directly to this girl and her family in the midst of their tragedy. But as I continued looking into this, I found something very interesting. 
This word Talitha, it, it means little girl. That, that really is what it means. But it's directly related to, and it sounds a whole lot like the word for lamb. Little lamb. In Aramaic, when you say, little girl, arise, it sounds a lot like you're saying, little lamb, get up. In Greek, nope, doesn't sound like lamb at all. But in Aramaic, the phrase that Mark kept sounds so much like saying, little lamb, get up. I believe this is a detail that Mark wanted us to see. I believe that is why he kept it here. To show us that when Jesus conquered death, when he did the most impossible thing, when he healed the unhealable, when he fixed the unfixable, when he broke down the gates of mortality in this moment, it wasn't with banners and trumpets and a heavenly army. It wasn't with a great cry to heaven. Death. Our great enemy, the thing that has separated families and swallowed our loved ones, he overcame it with a touch and with the gentlest of words. Little lamb, get up. Little lamb, it's time to wake up. I love that picture. And when he tells them to feed her after, to me, it's like a parent waking their child for breakfast. After the nightmare they have been through, he silences it all and walks in, and he wakes her up for breakfast for the first day of her new life. And when I see it that way, I think to myself, of course, of course it's that simple. How could I ever have imagined otherwise? The word, the spirit, the voice that called this girl into existence, of course, it would be just that easy to bring her back. The one who made her out of nothing through his love, surely he can rescue her out of anything through his love again. Of course. That's the first thing that stands out to me in this story. But there's another. There's another that's been growing every time I read this. And it's the story of Jairus. Jairus' daughter is dying, and he runs to Jesus, and he falls down and begs him. She is just holding on. She is holding on for you. She is holding on for you to save her. Please come. Please come and save her. She's just holding on. And Jesus says nothing but follows, and then something happens, and there's a woman, and there's things going on, and Jairus gets the word, your daughter is dead. Don't, don't bother the teacher anymore. And this moment, this moment sticks with me. Because I have prayed for people. And I've prayed for situations. 
and I have prayed for loved ones, ones that I love dearly, and I have prayed for them for weeks and for months and for years, and then I get the word, it's too late. It's over. The divorce was finalized. The, the addiction won. The family broke up. They didn't get better. The wound didn't heal. The child is gone. They gave up. It's over. You don't have to pray anymore. And in those moments, I want to say, why? Why, Jesus? I thought you were right behind me. I thought you were coming and they were holding on. They were holding on for you, for you to save them, for you to come to them, because I know you can. They were holding on for you. Was I too slow? Did I not beg you hard enough? Was I not important enough? Was she not important enough? Jesus, why? I thought you were right behind me. And it's in that moment, of all moments, that Jesus finally speaks. Don't fear, only trust. And part of me wants to say, trust what? Trust what, Jesus? It already happened. And yes, yes, I know you are all powerful. And yes, I know you can do anything. And I know nothing is too big. And I know you have the victory. And I know you have the power. And I know it all works out for good. I know, I know, I know. But some things, some things, Jesus, are just broken. Some things can't be fixed. Some things have happened and they can't unhappen, and you let this happen. I need to see Jesus because I don't see how you're going to fix this. You're asking me to trust you. Trust what? Talitha Kum. This scene, the scene of Talitha Kum, I believe this is everything Jesus is asking us to trust. Everything he is asking Jairus to trust. Everything he's asking me to trust. To trust his ability to fix the unfixable, to reverse the already too late. To trust that what has happened, it's not done yet, no matter how final it may seem. To trust that his solutions are more than solutions, they are restorations, they are recreations, they are more than we asked for, more than we imagined, and when they happen, and I promise you they will, we will be out of our minds with joy. 
and most of all, to trust that the ones we love, he loves them even more. And he can rescue them with a touch and a whisper. As simple and as beautiful as a parent waking their child. Talitha kum. Little one, it's time to wake up. God, you are good, and your mercy endures forever. Your faithfulness continues each and every morning. And we thank you now that the families and friends and the people we love that are impossibly lost to us are not impossibly lost to you. We stand upon that promise. We stand upon that hope that you who spoke them into existence can speak them into new life. And Father God, for everything that is dead and lost and impossibly broken in us and in our hearts, we trust you with this same blessing. We ask you to speak Talitha Kum over us, over our hearts and pain and misery and the things we've stopped asking for help because we think you can't. The things we've stopped asking you to fix because we've been told not to bother the teacher anymore. You, God, are the Alpha and the Omega, the creator and composer, and you can heal us with a word, and this is what we trust, and this is why we are not afraid. And we thank you for this today. In the name of the gracious lover of our souls, Jesus, amen.